Go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. And we will be focusing our efforts and energy and attention on exploring verses 1 to 12 and everything Christ has to teach us through verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 12. And if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning. Starting in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to, the, and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So in our text this morning, once again, Jesus speaks to the subject of pharisaical, but in, a, in reality to human hypocrisy. He's already touched on this subject, if you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1, where he said this, Beware, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Beware, and that word means be on your guard against, be cautious about, be alert to, concern yourself with ensuring that you do not practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus gives three examples. He says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. And it doesn't have to be a trumpet. Sound no instrument. Sound no kazoo. Sound no large or small tooting of any horn. Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. A second example. When you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And a third example in Matthew 6, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Did you see the threefold repetition? The reason why they pray and they fast and they give in order to be seen by others. 
the Pharisees really loved PDAs, but not defined as public displays of affection, but instead public displays for affection. This is a practice that Jesus condemns outright as hypocrisy. And he sets before us in Matthew 6 and in our text this morning an even better way when he says in chapter 6, verse 4, let your giving be in secret. A word that means let it be hidden. Let it be concealed from the notice of others. Let your giving be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He continues with prayer. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And again, in terms of fasting, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 6, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So do you see the pattern that Jesus establishes in Matthew chapter 6? Do not practice your spiritual disciplines to be seen by or praised by or applauded by other people. No, if you love God, you will give in secret. You will pray in secret. You will fast in secret. You will do these things between you and the Lord alone. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be a donation ninja. It's referring more to the desire to give so that others see and pray so that others see and fast so that others see. And if that is you, if you have a temptation to that end, then yes, be a ninja. Things you never thought you'd hear in a sermon, right? Go out and be ye therefore ninjas. But now as we come to Matthew chapter 23, once again, Jesus will speak to the crowds about this subject of hypocrisy. But this time he will clearly and unapologetically and without reservation call the scribes and the Pharisees to their face hypocrites. And for what reason, might you ask? Well, look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by men. You see that in the text, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by men, or for the purpose of being seen by others. This is the very definition of a self-serving, self-exalting, self-centered hypocrite. Hear it once again. They do all their deeds to be seen by men. And Jesus had already warned his disciples and the crowds to avoid following or being like this sort of person. The sort of person whose spiritual life, whose religion, whose so-called service and obedience to God aims more at eliciting praise and admiration for self from others than it does directing all praise and directing all honor to the God of Israel, the most precious and wonderful God, the one who reigns over everything, who reigns over all things, the only one in existence who rightly, who is, who is worthy and rightly deserving of all ascriptions of majesty and glory and honor and praise. And yet, 
Even though most, if not all of us, who claim to love Jesus recognize and pay lip service to this fact, there is something in us, isn't there? There's something in each and every one of us, no matter how mature in the faith we might be, that really does either openly or subtly seek and appreciate and enjoy it when attention and distinction and acclamation and applause is directed our way, right? For many of us, we are well aware of this internal contradiction. On the spiritual side, you don't want these honors. In my spirit, in your spirit, you don't want them. You want to focus them all on the Lord because you know that He's the only one worthy of those honors. And yet, in my flesh, I want honor for myself. I want recognition for my deeds. I want thanks for the things that I do for what I've done, for what I've accomplished. So you see, at the very same time, we don't want it, and we do want it. It's the age-old Romans 7 problem, right? The very, Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anyone? Anyone? We are such a confused and confusing lot, aren't we? And we have so many variations of attention-seeking. We have so many ways in which we subtly try to turn people's attention from God to ourselves. Some of us tell boastful stories. Some of us will, like the Pharisees, perform spiritual deeds so that others see. Others, instead of searching for attention by performing, will turn to the world's methods for gathering attention to themselves. If you look out at the world today, One of the fashionable, acceptable, and widely practiced formulas for attention and getting eyes on you is by sucking people into your vortex of victimhood. Our entire culture has become a series of woe is me, look at me, I have it so much worse than absolutely anyone else. If Job were here, he'd be like, I have nothing on you. I used to love watching America's Got Talent. That was one of the shows that I would get together with my family and we watched. We'd see clowns doing this and dogs doing that and we thought, this is fantastic. But over time, I had to stop watching it because it became clear over time that it wasn't the talented people that got through, but it was the people that had the biggest victimhood stories that started getting through. Now, just so you know, the point here isn't whether or not your list of difficulties in life or reasons for ascribing victimhood status to yourself don't have merit. That's not what we're talking about here. There are times when our misery calls for our faith family to weep with us. But other times it becomes a tactic that we use to gather attention to ourselves. For many in our world, the claiming of being a victim and having everything so hard is a, a way of getting people to look in your direction rather than in the Lord's. This is why I love the example of the Apostle Paul so much, who suffered numerous trials, 
I mean, just read the letter, the second letter to the Corinthians and see the trials and the whippings and the beatings and the shipwrecks and everything that the Apostle Paul suffered in his life and see what he says about them. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see how Paul turns the focus from his painful, difficult circumstances to the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, saying, don't focus on my trials, because with Jesus, with my most exalted Lord and Savior, I can endure, I can face it, I can persevere through it, and so can you. Look to the same Jesus as you walk through your life and as you walk through your trials. Look to Him. To in any way aim at, and there's the important word, aim at, or to have as your goal, the turning of eyes to ourselves rather than Jesus. To aim at living our religious lives, to be seen by men, is to live like the very scribes and Pharisees that Jesus warns us against imitating in our text this morning. And the word used here in verse 5, to be, for be seen, actually speaks to and describes the covetous desire for the attention of others that we secure by theatrical performances, by becoming in some way a spectacle for others to look at, attempting to attract the attention of other people. Did you hear that? The covetous desire for the attention of others that we secure by theatrical performance. It's human theater. It's play acting. It's presenting ourselves as one thing, a religious God-glorifying individual, when in reality, what we really want is to see some of that glory that we're saying we want to go to God to come to us. Let me set an example before you for your consideration, a little bit of a challenge here. As noted at the beginning of our time together, Jesus set forth three practices that we ought not to be doing in the sight of others, right? Giving, praying, fasting. Let's focus a little bit on prayer here. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, speaks to the practice of secret, private, closet prayer. Let me read Matthew 6, 6 again for you. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. The Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks, commenting on this very text, on these words of Jesus in Matthew 6, wrote this, and I want you to listen to this, and I quote, The ordinary exercising of yourselves in secret prayer is that which will distinguish you from the hypocrites who do all they do to be seen of men. Did you hear that? Listen to it again. The ordinary exercising of yourselves in secret prayer is that which will distinguish you from the hypocrites who do all they do to be seen of men. What is he saying? Brooks sets forth this idea that there really is only one mark that distinguishes a hypocrite who does things to be seen by others from the true and sincere follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that one thing? Secret, private, closet prayer. Now how could he make such a claim and why would he make such a claim? 
Because for Brooks, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, there is not anything else that we can do that it doesn't in some way come back to us or might not come back to us or contribute to our penchant for human acclaim. Think about it. You can spend 10 hours a day reading your Bible, a necessary, wonderful practice that we should be all engaged in at all times. But then we can start speaking about the Bible and debating the Bible and correcting others with the Bible and training others with all we've learned. And if we aren't careful, we might begin speaking about the Bible and training people in the Bible for the purpose of, you guessed it, being seen by others. As someone who is smart, someone who is deep, someone who is to be consulted on issues of spiritual life and in so doing, appeasing our flesh. The same is true with giving, isn't it? There will always be someone somewhere who knows how much or how little you give. There will always be someone outside of you and the Lord. It could be your tax guy, could be the government, could be the person or organization that you're giving to, could be your brother, could be your spouse, or whoever you decide to tell. And it might make you feel good, right, to be admired for your generosity. There are opportunities for the flesh to subtly position yourself to be seen by others in your giving. But secret, private, closet prayer. Think about that. Unless you are an absolute, complete, and total hypocrite, private prayer between you and God alone with the door shut in secret, with no prying eyes, with no announcement to others about the length of time you spend in prayer. This is really the only thing that you can do that is completely and totally between you and God alone. And the only reason others would know is because you've told them. This is the only practice that does not bring you accolades and the admiration of others because they have no idea they have no clue how long and how often you engage with the Lord in such secret prayer. This is an act of pure praise and pure honor and pure obedience to Him that only He sees, and it's something that is entered into solely for the sake of your relationship with and communion to God. And it's for this reason that A, Satan seeks to distract you from it, and B, we find it so difficult to do. You see, humanity always tends to prioritize that which benefits them externally in life, meaning we tend to prioritize that which contributes to our accumulation of more worldly goods, and we tend to prioritize that which in some way, shape, or form increases our reputation in the eyes of other people. But private prayer, closet prayer, for the sole purpose of fellowship with, communication to, and closeness with God, how often do you partake in so great a grace of God given to you? Reading the example of the medieval church monk, Bernard of Clairvaux, the author of the great hymn that we still sing, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, he stressed the need for such private prayer and contemplation, and so he went out in the medieval times and he established all these monasteries for the purpose. He established monasteries for people to escape from the world and to seek and strive after God 
in an uncompromising dedication to private communion with the Lord. Now you can obviously see the difficulty with that, right? We're not pushing for the establishment of monasteries, which themselves seem to be a public display of all that ought to be private. But the article that I read about Bernard did ask this insightful question, and I quote, Would we dare, or can it not be, cannot this be asserted, that communion with God and the priority we give it is the true indicator of our love for Him? When it comes to the school of spiritual devotion, examples of men like Bernard cast most of us as distracted kindergarten children. Can it not be said, so here's another person that agrees, can it not be said that the true indicator of our love for God is our communion with Him and the priority we give to that communion? The same article also convicts the reader with this word, quote, we desperately need to reconsider how much of a still, quiet place we have uncompromisingly reserved in our lives for communion with our Lord. Do we not more likely simply try to fit God into the rat race scheme of our lives, lives devoted to personal achievement? End quote. Wow. We have become a people dedicated to the externals. People that this quote ought to cut to the deepest depths of our soul. Those who try to fit God into the rat race of our lives. When it comes to actually communing with the God we profess to love in private closet prayer, with the Savior we profess faith in, is it a purposeful, devoted, private time with the Lord or is, is it a thing that we must try to fit into our lives? To fit into our full schedule. A schedule that, is, that we pack with labors and enjoyments that benefit us in some way. You notice that the one non-seen-by-men deed that is the closet prayer seems to be the most difficult spiritual practice for us to engage in? Have you noticed that in your own life? And why is that? Because there's no benefit to you in the eyes of other men in the practice. That's a weight that should sit on every one of us. Thomas Brooks continues and says this, self is the only oil that makes the chariot wheels of the hypocrite move in all religious concerns. Hypocrites will keep up their concerns no longer than they are fed and encouraged and enclosed with the golden praises and applauses of men. Hypocrites are like the blazing stars which as long as they are fed with gases shine as if they were fixed stars, but let the gases dry up and immediately they vanish and disappear." Closet duty, meaning secret prayer, speaks out most sincerity. The, most sincere, the more sincere the soul is, the more in closet duty the soul will be. So, think about your own life for a second. 
if it is true that the one thing that distinguishes us from a hypocrite who is focused on doing things that other people might see or doing things that benefit us in some way, if the only thing that separates us from that mentality or worldview, according to church fathers, Puritans, and I would say scripture as well, is closet private prayer, then how, how deeply do you love the Lord this morning? The scribes and the Pharisees about whom Jesus spoke in Matthew 23 spent much time praying publicly. They prayed so that everybody could hear their prayers, but it seems by Christ's application of the title hypocrite to them, they spent very little time in any sort of communion or prayer with God that did not raise or elevate their status in the eyes of other people. And because such hypocrites were the ones teaching and instructing the people of Israel, and because they labored to have people imitate their example, Jesus now turns his attention to the crowds along with his disciples in order to warn them about such a spiritual life as this. One that only does the deeds it does to be seen by men. And if you've been tracking along with us through Matthew... Just recently, you noticed that Jesus has repeatedly and soundly routed and prevailed over the religious leaders and their efforts to entrap and entangle Jesus. And their attempts to catch him in his words so they might accuse and charge him with something. Anything! They're hoping to discredit him in the eyes of the crowds that at this moment, three days before his crucifixion, are marveling at him. They hope to find a way to get him to say something that will lead to his execution. But after Jesus so soundly defeats every single one of their questions, Matthew 22, verse 46 tells us this, No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him questions. See, no one dared to ask Jesus questions any longer because they couldn't bear to be exposed as those who lacked insight or knowledge into the scriptures that they professed to be teachers of. They couldn't bear being disgraced and dishonored in the ears of the listening crowds. They simply did not possess sufficient knowledge, nor were they smart enough or cagey enough or crafty enough to trip Jesus up in any way, shape, or form. I mean, if you think about it, you take a step back and you think about it, the guy standing in front of them, this Jesus standing in front of them right now is the one who wrote the book. They might not have recognized that, but they did recognize that every time they tried to trip Jesus up, they came out on the losing end. And so they simply stopped and they no longer dared to ask Jesus any more questions. You see, the best thing for the religious leaders in this moment was, they realized, Christ's silence. But just because they stopped asking Jesus questions to trip him up, that doesn't mean that he stopped speaking to and instructing the crowds as these same scribes and Pharisees now remain silent. On the contrary, the exact opposite took place, as you see in verse 1. Introduction over. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, you see that? The Pharisees' worst nightmare has come to pass. 
as Jesus used this opportunity to speak more plainly and more openly about their hypocrisy, about their self-exalting pride. And most of Matthew chapter 23 is devoted to exposing the wicked hearts of the scribes and Pharisees and telling us, don't be like them. In verses 1 to 12, Jesus speaks to the crowds about the Pharisees who are in ear, no doubt within earshot of everything that Jesus is saying. And then in verses 13 to 39, he will direct his words to the scribes and the Pharisees and speak against them with such force, with such vivid, graphic, and if you were a scribe or a Pharisee, such infuriating and confrontational language using statements and descriptions that challenge any one of us who are more concerned with the tone in which something is said than with the truth contained in what is said. Listen to the denunciations Jesus is going to bring upon the Pharisees in the next section when we get to it. Hypocrites, children of hell, blind guides, whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones, serpents, brood of vipers sentenced to hell. One can only imagine how such a word as this might be received should someone speak like this today, right? But here he is, Jesus, meek and mild, speaking with an intensity designed for maximum impact upon the listener in the crowd and upon the Pharisee being denounced. He begins his denunciations by telling the crowds, you should, to a degree, listen to the scribes and Pharisees insofar as they teach and instruct you in truth, but by no means should you follow their example. Because what little they do know, they don't practice it. They'll spend all their time telling you what to do, but they won't lift a finger to help you. Now why? It's because their energy is not focused on you not on actually helping you love and serve and obey and live in relationship with the God of Israel. No, their minds are fixated on, zeroed in on, concentrated on turning the spotlight towards themselves in their direction. And because they're so focused on that, they have no time or desire to help you. And as you read the gospel... Oh, what a clear and marked contrast there is, right, between the Lord Jesus Christ and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who, who in Israel, those who presumed, according to verse 2, to sit on Moses' seat. What a contrast there is between the scribes and Pharisees and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so open and obvious as you read through the scriptures that these two groups, that this man and this group are nothing alike. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus revealed as the one who shows mercy and sympathy and compassion for the lost and the sick and the shepherdless crowds. The Gospels reveal to us that Jesus took on flesh and made his dwelling among us in order to seek and to save the lost. Jesus has come to earth as our great physician to both mix and apply the medicine necessary to save our souls. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, the only one through whom we come to the Father as his forgiven, adopted, and beloved children. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus working tirelessly during his earthly life to lift people's burdens as he touches lepers and outcasts, healing them of their grievous torment in the process. We see Jesus not running away from the demon-possessed, 
but instead walking towards them and driving the demons out of them so that these people might be restored to wholeness of life. We see Jesus healing paralytics of their afflictions and forgiving the sins of those paralytics. We see Jesus calling the dreaded tax collector to follow him in discipleship. We see Jesus raising up deceased children and restoring them to their families. We see Jesus healing women who suffered from long, dreadful, money-draining, very sensitive bodily issues and ensuring that they knew they were forgiven themselves. We see Jesus healing the blind and the mute. We see Jesus saving the life of and forgiving the sin of an adulterous woman brought to him by religious leaders ready to stone her to death and exhorting her to go and sin no more. We see Jesus spending time on the outskirts of Israel in Samaria among the hated Samaritans telling them, I am the living water, drink of me and you will never thirst again. We see Jesus sending his disciples out to the lost sheep of the, the, lost sheep of the house of Israel with the good news of the kingdom of God. We see Jesus promising soul rest to all who are heavy laden and weary provided they come to him in faith. And at great cost to himself, on this day, we see Jesus standing up to and completely embarrassing the hypocritical, self-serving, self-exalting religious authorities that are trying to lead people astray by their faulty teaching, their faulty example, and their terrible leadership. This Jesus has come to serve humanity by laying down his life to save sinners. This Jesus has come to reveal the love and the mercy and the grace and the holiness and the truth and the justice of God as he voluntarily proceeds to the cross where he will obey the Father's will, where he will bear the scorn and bear the mockery and all the shame and all of the humiliation that is heaped upon him from every single corner. From his own disciples who deny him and call down curses upon themselves, swearing up and down that they don't even know him as he's being tried by the Jewish leaders. Or his own countrymen, the Jewish peoples that he came to call to repentance, who instead, who on this day might seem to marvel at him, but in just a few days will cry out, crucify him, as Pilate seeks to release him. Or the religious leaders who arrested him by night and put him through a kangaroo court, a sham trial, in order to deliver him up to the Romans, who happily insulted him, who happily pounded nails through his wrists and feet, who happily did so because, in their minds, here we are putting to death yet another Jewish criminal. So you see Jesus, God in the flesh, serving humanity, compassionate, sympathetic, tender, and humble. And now compare him to the religious leaders who claim authority over, who claim to lead and guide the nation of Israel at this time. Compare Jesus with those who, some, who even claim to lead God's people today. Compare yourself to him. The Pharisees made a practice of comparing themselves to everyone around them. But they need to compare themselves to him. And when they, when we do that, when we compare everyone, ourselves to everyone around us, you know what? We can always find someone that we think we are better than, someone that we think we're more spiritual than, someone we think we're more responsible than or smarter than. We can always come out on top in our own minds. And we can, if we're not careful, subtly begin thinking, thanking God that we aren't like them. Or even worse, 
We can begin to thank and praise ourselves that we, by our own smarts, by our own power, by our own ability and know-how, by our own common sense, have kept ourselves from being like them. That's the very essence of the Pharisaic mindset. It's the exact opposite of what Christ expects from anyone who calls themselves, who calls him Lord and Savior. So hear the words of Christ in verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, meaning they have taken it upon themselves, or as the New American Standard translates it, they have seated themselves on Moses' seat as the teachers of God's law, as given through Moses to Israel. Meaning, they claim to be the authoritative spokesman for the Lord. And so, Jesus said, do and observe whatever they tell you. Now, that is not a blanket statement that Jesus is making that you just simply listen to everything the Pharisees teach. Because we have noted that Jesus has already said they teach much in the way of error and they instruct in hypocrisy. Jesus has already told the crowds, do not be like those who pray and fast so that they might be seen by men. And he has already corrected their erroneous teachings on such topics as anger, lust, divorce, forgiveness, and others in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here saying to do and to observe what the Pharisees who instruct in Moses' law teach, do so insofar as it accords with the truth of God. Because, you see, for all the bad press the Pharisees get, much of it is deserved, they did, for, in many ways, conform to the teaching of the Old Testament. They, unlike the Sadducees, for example, taught about and ascribed to such truths as the resurrection, the existence of angels, the authority of the entire Old Testament. So when they teach truth, do it, observe it. Truth is truth regardless of if, whether it is spoken by a hypocrite or not. There is no excuse for someone hearing truth and ignoring it or rejecting it simply because they don't like the person speaking it. Because they don't like the tone. However, in terms of hypocrites like the Pharisees, hear the truth they speak, but do not do. Verse 3, see that? Do not do the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Meaning, they say things, but don't themselves do the things they say. The hypocrite is the one who tells you what you ought to do while thinking themselves above their own teaching. The Pharisees took this to a whole different level, however, in that they continually told other people what to do, and they judged everyone who failed to live up to their standards while creating for themselves a complicated web of loopholes that they would continually appeal to in order to justify their own inability to live up to their own preaching. See, Jesus doesn't focus on that, but he brings up three instances of their hypocrisy in our text. The first one is in verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So the picture here is that of binding up a large bundle of individual sticks. Imagine the sticks to be laws, individual man-made laws. The Pharisees would bind up a big pack of them and place that bundle on people's backs. Envision the placing of a load on the back of a donkey, a load that is so huge that loads down the donkey so much that it can hardly move. 
And as the owner of the donkey stands around, he doesn't lift a finger to take any of that load, but just berates the donkey and hits it. That's the Pharisee. The scribes and the Pharisees, to elevate themselves, burdened the Israelites with loads of extra-biblical rules. And as people failed to live up to the impossible weight, the religious leaders would stand by with finger-pointed and rebuke and judge and condemn them never doing so much as li- not even lifting a finger to help. It's amazing how easily we can slip into such a mentality, right? Expecting others to follow our own ideals, our own self-made rules, our own laws, our own perspectives, our own opinions, and then when they don't, we judge them and condemn them and quarrel with them over, uh, over all of it, all the while and you know this about yourself, and I know this about myself, all the while secretly failing and falling short of our very own laws and rules. In many ways, we need to recognize that nobody can live up to your rules, not even you. And you see the depths and the layers to our own hypocrisy. We can get mad at others for our particularities, and then not do them ourselves. And then when, when we are the ones who are hypocrites, we don't say to ourselves, I'm a hypocrite. We say, well, I was tired that day. Or I was angry that day. Or uh, I was hungry that day. Something in my circumstance made me not do it. But if somebody else breaks your rule, you ascribe it to their nature. They're less spiritual. They're not godly. They're cruel. They're mean. See our hypocrisy? We must be more upset with our own sins and our own hypocrisies than we are with those of others. We must be more ruthless in rooting out, eliminating, and dealing with our own wickedness and rebellion than we are with others. But far too often, like the Pharisees, we will condemn others harshly while justifying and treating our own sins lightly and softly. May we never be the hypocrite who loads up everyone else with burdens tied together, who condemns others for not being able to carry and lift them up or live up to them, but hides our own failures to live up to our own burden, who will not point others. May we never be those who do not point others in the direction of rest for their souls. I mean, contrast such a worldview with the words of Christ. Come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you will find rest for your souls. I like that version. I like that better. The second instance of Pharisaical hypocrisy Jesus points to is in verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. This is something Jesus has already rebuked them for in chapter 5 verse John 5:44 when he said, "How can you believe? Like how can you possibly believe in God when you receive glory or your focus is on receiving glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God?" See, their entire religion was practiced visibly and publicly for the purpose of making of, of increasing their own honor. And a couple of examples are given here, that of phylacteries and fringes in, chapter, in verse 5. You see that? 
They make their phylacteries broad. Now, the phylactery was a small box that contained a text of Scripture, and they derived the practice of fastening these little boxes on themselves, onto their arms and onto their heads, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which reads this. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They took this in a very literal manner and made boxes and they put the Shema in the box and then they fastened them to their left arm, which is the arm that's closest to the heart, and right here on their foreheads. And so to distinguish themselves from the regular folk, the Pharisees made those little scripture boxes uh, very large, unusually broad, and bound them to the middle of their foreheads. Now you can imagine, every time a Pharisee goes to have a conversation with somebody, they're looking at their eyes to see if that person looks at the big box on their forehead. They were always put in places that were visible to attract attention to their piety or their holy conduct. What was meant to point someone to the Lord became in the hands of the Pharisees yet another avenue for self-glorification. And along with the phylacteries they made, in verse 5, their fringes long. So these would be the ceremonial tassels that hung from the, their shirts or their garments. And the Lord commanded these in Numbers chapter 15, saying this, Speak to the people of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So you see, the very tassels that the Lord commanded the Israelites to wear to remind them to look to the Lord and to give and ascribe all glory to the Lord to keep them from following their own hearts were transformed by the Pharisees into yet another avenue for them to whore after their own heart's selfish desire for man's applause. And so you see these men walking around with unusually broad phylacteries and really long fringes, and the hope was that people would see them and say, wow, look how spiritual that guy is. May it never be that we transform the commands of God, commands that are designed to remind us of His holiness and His goodness and His honor and His glory into pathways for our own self-justification and self-glorification. Oh, what a horrific blasphemy that would be. The third example of hypocrisy noted by Jesus is in verse 7. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. See, the Pharisees delighted in the seat of preeminence. They wanted the first position, this place of honor, the seats that caused everyone in the feast and at the synagogues to see them as the distinguished members or people or guests in each one. Certain seats you could sit in and they'd be like, ooh, that guy must be important. For the Pharisees and for us also to love such things, to love these seats of honor, to seek them, if you are one who loves to be distinguished from or sit in the primary seat of, of uh, distinguishing, distinguishment, that means you must do everything in your power to avoid it. If your flesh is somehow satisfied by seats of honor, don't seek them. 
Chances are, whatever your flesh seeks after and is satisfied by, you should immediately turn to God's Word, immediately turn to God in prayer, because when flesh is satisfied, generally speaking, that's not a good thing. The fourth uh, pharisaical act of hypocrisy that is rebuked by Jesus is that they love, verse 7, greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They love the salutations and the nods of respect that were given to them by the people assembled in the public square. They loved the attention that was given to them as person after person stopped to notice and bow to them, saying, Rabbi. The Pharisees loved and they craved these demonstrations of respect, these public recognitions of their prominence. So they would seek after the titles, seek after the <coughs> honorific title of rabbi. This was a coveted designation that meant something along the lines of my superior or your excellency or oh great one. And Jesus warned both the crowds and the disciples to avoid seeking the adoration of others like the scribes and the Pharisees did. This is what he intends when he continues in verses 8 to 10. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now the detail to focus on here is in verse 8. You are all brothers. See that little phrase there, you are all brothers. You see, you and I, humans in general, have a tendency to align with and to adore our heroes and respected figures. And those heroes who are adored and respected love to drink in the praise and the adoration that they receive, and then they get thirsty for more. But both of these, Jesus said, are to be avoided. Both lifting someone up more highly than they should be lifted up and loving the adoration of those of being lifted up. And why? Because, Jesus said, we are all brothers. We are all one in Christ. We are all on equal footing, one with another. We are all sinners that Christ has saved, provided you turn to him in faith. Now, it is true that Jesus, our Lord and, our, and the Holy Spirit, gifts each one of us differently for different areas of service, but this in no way means or implies that any one of us is worth more than the other. Or that any of us is elevated above any other simply means that God has defined roles for us to live out together as a body. And in a body, one, the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you or I'm of greater value than you, or the hand can't say to the, is that what I just said? The foot can't say to the hand the same thing. All of us, no matter what our giftings, all of us, no matter what our role, must always remember the words of that most precious hymn, praise God from whom all blessings flow, because they all come from him. We must remember that we as a body working together exalts and honors and magnifies Christ. And in this sense, ascribing titles like rabbi, father, or instructor, if by those titles one is set apart as of greater value than the rest, ought to not ever happen. That's the mentality Jesus is rebuking here. And the one that is called rabbi should not accept the title if people ascribe it to him with these motives. No leader is to demand respect or honor from anyone else. No leader is to seek power and wealth from anyone else. No leader is to minister among the people of God for the sake of his own admiration, his own prestige, and his own applause. In this sense, no one should be called rabbi, no one should be called father, no one should be called instructor. Instead, 
no matter who you are, verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. This is the exact opposite of the Pharisaical life. If you would be important, if you would be great, if you would strive to be the greatest among God's people, then serving the body, serving your brothers, giving of yourself is the pathway to that greatness. Not in the, not in the sense of being elevated by other people, but being elevated by God himself. Whereas the Pharisees sought to take from people, to receive from people, to be adored by people, the truly great child of Christ is the one who, like Jesus, seeks to give to people and to serve other people and to love people. And what does it mean to be great? See how Jesus concludes his word to the crowds here in verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Meaning whoever lifts themselves up and seeks the attention of and labors to turn people's eyes in their direction for the purpose of appeasing yourself, such people will be humbled by the Lord. Such people will be brought low. They will be humiliated, disgraced, and discredited by who? The Lord himself. Because self-exaltation practiced in like manner to the Pharisees indicates that you are void of the Spirit. However, those who bring themselves low, who cares not about their own humiliation, who can, like Jesus, serve to the point of self-shame, such a one will be lifted up. Such a one will be raised up. What does it mean to humble oneself in this context? It is not you humbling yourself before another person, although that's important, but it's you humbling yourself before the Lord, as James wrote in chapter 4, verse 10 of his letter, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When, we, when the standard to which we must compare ourselves is not one another, but the Lord himself, as we recognize his magnitude and his holiness, and we compare ourselves to his perfect standard, guess what? All the excuses, all the justifications, all the appeals cease. To truly humble oneself before the Lord will lead to our humility with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And only those who have truly humbled themselves before the Lord can live humbly and in service to your fellow brother and believer. When humbling self before the Lord, all of our childish flesh-driven, selfish grounds and rationalizations for sin and pride cease. We can no longer say, unless we're completely deluded, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or I want nothing to do with them, you have no idea what they did to me. Or they're such fools, they're just not smart, they have no common sense, along with whatever else you want to say to compare yourself with someone else. All of these, when you compare yourself to God and His law, become moot points because the only consideration that you and I ought to have is who am I before God? Not who others are before you, not who others are before me, but who am I before God? Humble ourselves before the Lord and He will exalt us in due time. So let me conclude with just a few pharisaical, self-exalting traits that we must leave behind and a reminder that Christ is worth the effort. Do not be like the self-exalting Pharisee and live defensively, 
lash out, quarrel, and stew in bitterness whenever your pride or your honor is questioned or challenged. But humble yourself before the Lord. Do not be consumed by and fixated on your public image like they were. The scribes and the Pharisees, in fact, were the first to use filters. You know, like people take selfies and they use these filters on their Facebook pictures or their videos for TikTok. The Pharisees were the first to do that, but they used broad phylacteries and long fringes. Same idea, different time and expression. Do not be like the Pharisees who are consumed and fixated on your own image, but humble yourself before the Lord. Do not be like the Pharisees who cannot or could not overlook any violation to their self-made rules and traditions. Do not be like the Pharisees who in their self-absorption cut off relationships over every disagreement and came down in harsh judgment at every point of difference of opinion and preference. But instead, humble yourself before the Lord. Do not be like the Pharisees whose entire spiritual life is done and lived so that it might be seen by other people. Instead, humble yourself before the Lord. Because to live like the Pharisees, oh, what a terrible, no good, very bad way to live. Instead, turn to the Lord and learn from him who James writes is compassionate and merciful. And I pray that we, for the glory of God, for the good of his church, for the well-being of our souls, would imitate him as we humbly live before him for the praise and the glory and the honor of his name, not ours. Father, we thank you for this word. And we ask that you would help us to defeat or to win this battle against the flesh by the power of your spirit. Because it's so easy for each and every single one of us, and we all know this by experience, to be very pharisaical in the way that we live in this world. And Lord, in our spirits we know we want to be like Jesus, and yet there's this battle and there's this contradiction in us where we also want to to receive your praise, but may we never be those who steal glory that rightly you rightly deserve help us we can't do it on our own we are helpless and we pray that you would help, would give us the strength to truly humble ourselves before you and we ask this in Christ's name amen